You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey family, thank you for joining us today as we get set to sit under the teaching of the Word of God. We're in week three of a sermon series that we're calling Stayed on Him. If you haven't been here for the last couple weeks of the series, I want to encourage you to to go back and check those sermons out as I believe taking in the series as a whole uh, will help you out and bless you tremendously. And also, I believe it will help you to make a lot of connections to further understanding all of this sermon and the series and the sermons, excuse me, in the series that follow. Uh, That said, I go by Denzel. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. No, I'm playing. I go by Ant. Uh, which, and if you don't get that joke, go and watch last week's sermon. Uh, seriously, our, our theme verse for this sermon series comes from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. It reads, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This sermon series is designed to help us find perfect peace or a more literal translation from the Hebrew, peace, peace, in Christ by helping us keep our minds and hearts stayed on him during these troublesome times. For only in him can our souls actually find true and rich and ultimately fulfilling and thorough peace, which we were made and designed to experience in God. That said, if we're going to keep If we're going to be kept, I should say, in that peace, peace, in the peace of God, we must keep our minds on him the true him, how he actually is. I make that point because sometimes we like to emphasize certain aspects of God's character and minimize other aspects of his character. We like to focus more on parts on his character that we particularly enjoy the most, and we like to at times kind of push to the side or marginalize other aspects of his character that don't strike us the way that we desire them to do so. This is very problematic because it actually keeps us from finding true peace in him because because instead of actually keeping our minds on him, we are trying to keep our minds on on a certain image of him that we have created inside of our minds. Today, as we continue working through parts of the book of Exodus, I want to show us how even an aspect of God's character that many of us in our culture find to be off-putting, how even those attributes of God Help us find true peace in him when we perceive him and his attributes rightly. The story that we'll be looking at today in Exodus is a story known as the Passover. This is a hugely important story in the Bible. The celebration of the Passover is arguably the biggest and most important celebration of the people of God in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. The Passover is how God's people get freed from slavery in Egypt to be able to get to the promised land, the land that he had promised to their forefathers. In the first chapter of the book of John, when John the Baptist, the prophet who was sent by God to pave the way for Jesus to come, when he, the first time he sees Jesus in this book, he proclaims this in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He essentially is referring to Jesus as the Passover lamb when he says that. So the man who was sent to pave the way for Jesus, to introduce Jesus for who he is, refers to him in so many words as the Passover lamb. 
Passover is extremely important to us knowing who God is so that we might properly fix our eyes on him. So let me try to give a little context for what happens at the time of the Passover, what happens leading up to the Passover. So again, God's people are enslaved to the Egyptians. Their oppression is very harsh. There's a system of oppression and enslaving them that Pharaoh has set up, and that system is being supported by the people, the Egyptians that are there. I mean, it's so severe that when the people of God started growing in number, Pharaoh and his people had the the sons that were being born at that particular time killed over and over and over again. Multiple children were killed. These sons were killed because the Egyptians were terrified of, of the Israelites growing in number and being able to overpower them. This is the degree, this is the type of oppression that they were experiencing. So as we talked about last week, God begins to raise up Moses and delegate to him the responsibility of setting free his people, of going to Pharaoh and letting Pharaoh know, hey, you need to let my people go. I have seen how you have oppressed them. I have seen the ways that you have hurt them. Now is the time for you to let them go. This ends now. Pharaoh, obviously, if you're familiar with the story, he disagrees. So God, working through Moses, uses these these, these signs, these wonders known as plagues, where he is ultimately revealing to Pharaoh and everyone else that he is more powerful than Pharaoh, and Pharaoh needs to submit to his will. Pharaoh Pharaoh needs to stop oppressing the people of God and say, okay, you're God. I submit to you. Whatever you want goes. So God is is continuing to show him, hey, I am powerful. You, You need to listen to me. It's going to go bad for you if you do not. So there's plague after plague after plague, and eventually, We get to the ninth plague, and I want you to imagine this plague. It is darkness for three straight days. Let's look at Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And Pharaoh still did not let them go. God brought darkness upon Egypt for three days. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't go anywhere because it was pitch darkness, night and day. Only in Egypt, where the Israelites were, they had night, they had day, just just as normal, as the way things normally occur. This was God saying, hey, Pharaoh, listen, you need to let them go. I am stronger than you are. You don't want to continue to fight against me. Pharaoh gets so angry at Moses He tells Moses to get away from him and that he wasn't going to let God's people go. And that if Moses came back, he told Moses to his face, I will murder you if you come back. If I see you again, you're a dead man. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. So that leads us to the 10th plague, where Moses lets Pharaoh know that if you don't let them go, all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, including your firstborn, Pharaoh. They will die if you do not let them go. You can avoid all this. Just let God's people go so that they can go and worship him and make it to the promised land. Just let them go. We can, we can avoid all of this. Pharaoh refuses to do so. And what we know as the Passover is specifically what God told his people to do, his, the Israelites to do, so that they wouldn't suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. 
So I'll read Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 through 27, where we get some insight into this Passover and what they were told to do. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, and he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So they were to kill the Passover lamb. It was to be a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb, and put that blood on the doorpost. And the blood of the lamb was to save them for the judgment that was coming to Egypt. And God did execute his judgment on the people of Egypt. They collectively, not just Pharaoh, they collectively had physically and spiritually oppressed his people. God had given them warning after warning and sign after sign and miracle after miracle to communicate to them to let his people go. He made it dark for three straight days. They didn't see each other for three days. They couldn't go anywhere for three days. And at that point, it would take more than just signs and miracles to get Pharaoh to let God's people go. It would take judgment. And he executed his judgment on them in devastating fashion. Since I know things like this are very difficult to see God do, I know it's difficult for me to read passages like this when I see such destruction, such judgment. So I want to make a couple things clear, a couple things that are helpful to me that I hope are helpful to you as well. First of all, just so that we're clear, everyone in Egypt deserved judgment. Why do I say that? Because I'm not saying that everyone necessarily played a role in the punishment or oppression of God's people at that time, but I'm saying that everyone had sinned and rebelled against the one true God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the same book, chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. So everyone has sinned, and, and the, the wage of the payment for sin, the penalty for sin is death. God's judgment is always just. He's the only one who has not sinned, which means he's the only one who's actually qualified to determine what the appropriate penalty for sin is. He's the only one who is completely righteous and completely just. And he says the wages for sin is death. None of us are innocent. We see this in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5 as well. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into sin. We are born with a, with a bend towards and a tendency towards not following God. I have four children. I can tell you very clearly, you do not have to teach a child how to sin. You do not have to teach a child how to do something to someone else that they would not want for someone else to do to them. 
You do not have to teach a child how to do something that they would say is morally wrong. It is innate in us. I'm not saying that we're all not made in the image of God, right? We are made in the image of God, and we are able to display his glory and his goodness and be used by him in incredible and powerful ways. And at the same time, sin has corrupted all of us. We all stand before God as guilty. All have sinned and fall short. All are worthy of his judgment. And that's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to point out that I think is also very important to understand is that God is the author of life. And because of that, he is able to justly determine how long each of us are to live. Whether he blesses us with 10 years of life or 100 years of life, he has the right to determine our days. Life is a gift from him. He does not owe it to us. It is a gift from him that he allows us to continue to enjoy. Life is his. Life itself belongs to him. We belong to him. The air in our lungs belong to him. The food that he grants us for sustenance that we can continue to live and move and have our being belongs to to him. The blood in our very veins belongs to him which means he does have the right to justly give life and take life away. He is not unjust to determine the end of our days or the end of our lives, whether it be what we consider to be short or, continued, or considered to be long. And every single moment, every second that we have, that we can experience life is another moment, is another day, is another second of blessing from God that he did not have to give us that we should be thankful for. And God, in his judgment, decided to end the lives on this earth of many Egyptians. And at the same time, he shows grace to the Israelites who were also worthy of judgment. They were not perfect either. They also were sinners. And then he allowed a lamb to be a substitute that stands in their place. So instead of the firstborn of the people of Israel dying, a lamb died in their place. The blood on their doorposts was a reminder to them on that day of judgment that a lamb had died in their place. Judgment that they too deserved, but because, because all have sinned against God, had passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. Family, as we keep our eyes stayed on Jesus throughout this week, throughout this series, throughout our lives, as we keep our eyes stayed on him, I want you to intentionally set your thoughts on the fact that God is both a God of grace and a God of judgment. Consistently in in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this combination of grace, his kindness to people that is completely unearned, and judgment. We, current, we oftentimes see them together at play and at work at the same time. We see it in the story of Noah and the ark. He brought judgment on the world but saved Noah and his family, even though, as we see, not too long after Noah and his family get off the boat, Noah is not perfect. Noah is very much not perfect. He's very much a sinner like everyone else. We see it in the story of Rahab. She wasn't perfect. She had her own sin in the way that she lived. But when God brought his judgment to Jericho, Rahab and her family were saved. We see judgment and grace at play here. We see it in the book of Jeremiah when we see God's people getting exiled out of their land, out of the promised land, 
So if you're familiar with the story, they, they are freed from slavery in Egypt so that they could go to this promised land where they'll be free to worship God. When they were in Egypt, they were not free to worship the one true God as God desired for them to do. So they had to be freed from that bondage and that slavery to be able to worship God. And that's why the promised land was there, to give them a space that was their own where their enemies could not overtake them and force them to worship these other gods. But then when they get there, if you're familiar with the story, they don't worship God and God alone. Instead, they still take on the idols of the nations and the kingdoms that are around them. And so God ultimately has them exiled from their land. That's his judgment on them. But at the same time, he makes them a promise in the book of Jeremiah that he's going to bring them back to their land. And he's still going to use them for the purpose that he originally had ordained for them. We see at the very same moment that we see his judgment, as they were being removed from the land, the promised land, we see a promise of his grace that he's going to bring them back and that they're going to fulfill the destiny that he had ordained for them. And then another time when we see God's grace and his judgment at the same time is this incredible plot twist in the story. And I believe somewhat of a, a conclusion to the narrative of Pharaoh is that it's not just Pharaoh that ends up having his firstborn die for the salvation of God's people. But God puts himself in the same place as Pharaoh and allows himself to experience the exact same thing that Pharaoh experienced when his son dies for the salvation of his people, when his son dies so that his people can worship him and be freed from idolatry. It's very shocking for me to see what God does to Pharaoh and to Egypt, but what's even more shocking What's even more shocking than that, and I hope we haven't grown numb to this reality, is the fact that God allows himself to experience the same thing, that God's son dies for the salvation of his people, that God's son becomes the Passover lamb where we see the judgment at play when, when the sins of the world are placed on the Christ and he is condemned in our place. And we see his grace at, at this, on display as well as we are saved because of his sacrifice, because he is the true Passover lamb. We serve a God who's both a God of judgment and a God of grace. And nowhere is that more clear than the cross of Jesus, where God himself allows himself to suffer the same fate as Pharaoh as he has to endure the death of his son. Because he loved us enough to step into our experience, to step into a broken world, to, to step into a world that is marred by evil and brutality and condemnation. And he didn't just step into, the, into that world, but he allowed that world to affect and kill his only begotten son. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and verse 6, this is what the prophet writes about Jesus years and years and years before Jesus comes. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We sinned, he took the punishment. 
He got crushed, and we, and we were the ones that were full of iniquity and immoral behavior. He got chastised, and we got peace. He got wounded, and we got healed. He got our sin put on him when we were the ones that went astray and turned away from him, and we received his grace. He is a God of both judgment and grace. We see this continue on in verse 11, Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteous one, Jesus, will experience anguish in his soul because of the judgment that he will receive. And out of his anguish, out of his deep pain, he will make many be counted righteousness as he takes our sin upon himself and gives us credit for his righteousness. He gets judged. We receive grace. He receives condemnation. We receive kindness from God. He is a God of both grace and judgment. And this is extremely important because actually, whether we realize it or not, we need a God of both grace and judgment. We need him to be both. We need a God who does not tolerate evil. We need a God who does not tolerate sin and oppression and murder and abuse and the degradation degradation of people who are made in his image. We need a God who does not tolerate rebellion against a good and holy and righteous God. We need a God who won't turn a blind eye to genocide. We need a God that says this to Cain after he killed his brother in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, what have you done? This is after Cain had killed his brother Abel. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. We need a God who hears the blood of those who are murdered, crying out to him from the ground, and who is a just judge for those who are murdered in cold blood. We need a God that promises that justice will be served, that he will execute judgment no matter what any earthly judicial system does. We need a God who promises that there will be judgment for every sin that has ever been committed. We need a God of judgment because without judgment, there is no justice. And we wouldn't be able to trust him if he wasn't a God of justice. We need him to be a God of justice. In a world where injustice is everywhere, it's such a blessing to have a God of judgment. It's such a comfort to know that even when the judicial systems of our world fail, and they will continue to fail because they can't be perfect, because they are made up by people who are sinful, it's a comfort to know that we have a God who reigns over everything, who sees everything, who is the ultimate judge, who is not biased in any way, who is not a respecter of persons. It is a blessing and a comfort to know that he is the judge. If you care about justice in this world at all, it is a blessing to have a God that we know of from the Bible that actually cares more about justice than we do. No matter what injustice you have seen, God cares more about justice than you do. God hates injustice more than you do. This is the God of judgment that we serve. And I don't don't know about you. I don't know how you deal with it and find peace of mind when you see incredible acts of injustice and a criminal justice system that can't fully and doesn't fully handle it the way that it should. 
I don't know how you handle it and find peace in your heart when someone sins against you and it really hurts you and you want so badly to retaliate and get revenge towards them. I don't know how you cope with the constant news headlines of injustice after injustice in our country and around the world. I don't know how you deal with it, but if you want perfect peace, if you want peace, peace, if you want peace that can rule in your heart and help you find clarity and sanity, I encourage you today to keep your mind and your thoughts stayed on the God of justice, the God who judges and punishes sin. Remembering that my God is a just and righteous and ultimate judge is the only way that I can find peace with all the injustice in this world. Knowing that he sits high and he looks low and he sees every sin and he promises to bring judgment for all sin, all injustice in this world. Family, keep your mind stayed on him. Keep your mind stayed on the God of justice. Praise God that we have a God of justice and judgment. And praise God that we have a God of grace as well. Because even though we couldn't trust him if he wasn't a good judge, we still need him to be a God of grace as well. We need him to be a God that pardons the guilty also. We need him to be a God that makes a way for sinful people like me and you to be saved, even though we have sinned against him and sinned against each other. We need a God who is gracious in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, and in spite of our evil. Because if not, then none can be saved. We need a God who is gracious to us in spite of our wrongdoings, or else there is no hope for anyone. We need him to simultaneously not let any shred of evil go unpunished, while still pardoning all of our evil. We need a God who can do the impossible. We need one who can save those who aren't worthy of being saved while still punishing sin. Because I've sinned against my wife this past week. Because I've been unnecessarily angry and mean to my kids in ways that they didn't deserve. Because I've said hurtful things to people. Because I've hurt people in our very church. Because I've sinned against God and sinned against his people. I need a God of grace. I need a God who can forgive And if he were only a God of judgment and not a God of grace, then there is no hope for me and there is no hope for you. Because you've lied before. Because you've hurt people before. Because you've done things that you pray no one would ever do to you. Because you've rebelled against and been defiant towards a good God who has always desired to lavish his love upon you. Because you've done things that you would tell other people not to do. And if you're like me, you have thoughts of self-condemnation, right? There are things that you've done that are wrong that you don't like to think about. Or maybe when someone points out sin or moral failure in your life, you get very defensive because you hate to look at your sin. You hate to have other people see your sin because then you start feeling this pain inside of yourself, this shame and this guilt and this condemnation. Or maybe because of all of your self-condemning thoughts, because of all the wrong things that you've done, maybe you think that God can't really love and like you, right? You think you have to hide yourself from God, maybe right after you sin or right after you've done something wrong, you feel like you can't go to God. We need a God of grace who lavishes his grace on us, even when we have turned against him. 
Because if we're honest, for many of us, we can name ways that we sinned this past week. We can name ways we sinned yesterday. We can name ways that we've sinned this morning. And because God is a just God of justice, we deserve to be punished and condemned for the lawbreakers that we are. And we feel that and we sense that. And that shows us our need for him to be a God of justice and a God of grace if we are to have any hope. And that's why I am just overwhelmingly thankful for the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 3. We'll start it in verse 23. He writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation means means to satisfy something or something that satisfies something or someone else. So Paul is saying that Christ was put forward and received in his body the condemnation for sin that we deserved and, and thus satisfied God's righteous justice his need for justice and his judgment, his condemnation satisfied God's demand for justice. Let's keep reading in verse 25. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So before we go to verse 26, Paul's point here is that Jesus being condemned for sin shows that God is actually a righteous judge that condemns sin. Because there had been, the penalty had not been paid for those followers of God that had sinned against him in the past before Christ. He, he was patient. That word for, to forbear means to be patient with someone. God had previously shown forbearance as he was patient with the sins of his followers before Jesus, before Jesus came, because there was no suitable sacrifice. And then look at what he says in verse 26. This is my favorite verse in the passage. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, key phrase right here, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'll read that again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The condemnation that Jesus received for sin shows more than anything else may potentially, that he is a God of both justice and grace, or judgment and grace. Or as Paul says it here, he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Because of Christ's death, he is able to justly and righteously condemn and judge all sin of his people and make sure he never turns a blind eye to our sins, yet at the same time not condemn us. He's able to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. He is able to be the just judge that brings the full weight of condemnation that our sin deserves and yet still lavish on us his grace and love and mercy for all eternity. He is a God of judgment and of grace. He is able to be just and the justifier. He judges sin and he saves the lost. He executes justice and he pardons the guilty. This is the glory of our God and our Savior. His ability to be just and the justifier separates Christ from all other faiths, all other religions, all other quote-unquote saviors. He stands alone as the spotless, sacrificial lamb. Let us behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us fix our eyes on the lamb that was slain for our sins. 
Let us remember that he was killed because we serve a God that is just and every sin must be condemned. And because we serve a God that is gracious, who delights to save sinners from condemnation. Family, if you want to be able to find perfect peace, if you want to be able to find that peace, peace, you need to keep your mind stayed on the God of justice and of grace, the God of judgment and the God of kindness. We need him to be a God of justice so we can find some amount of peace of mind when we see all the evil and all the injustice in the world around us. And we need him to be a God of grace so that we can find peace of mind when we see all the evil and injustice that is inside of us. Family, this week, let us fix our eyes to behold our great Passover lamb, our God of judgment and our God of grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being exactly who we need. Thank you for being a judge that defends those who have been taken advantage of, who have been abused, who, who, have been, who have received various acts of injustice. And thank you for also being able to justify your people who have sinned against you, who have sinned against those who bear your image. Father, help us to keep our mind fixed on you. Help us not to be so, so caught up with everything that's going on in the world that we don't look at you, that we don't look to you, that we don't seek your face, that we don't remember who you are and remember how good you are. Father, as we are in this trouble, these troublesome times, keep us from forgetting that you are still good no matter what happens in this world. Help us to remember that you are good. And if we keep our minds stayed on you, we can find true and perfect peace in you. And Father, will you make that a sweet reality for us? That we find true, deep, lasting, meaningful, perfect, and thorough peace in you. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.